Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in Michael Shell now, Market Field Asset Management Chairman, Portfolio Manager, and CEO. He joins us here in New York. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning. Let's get to that IBM deal. Ten times sales for Red Hat, $33 billion. What does Red Hat do and why does IBM need them? Is this all about the cloud? I, I think it's all about IBM trying to catch up with a technology cycle that's you know left it trailing in the dust. Sounds a little late to me, Michael. Uh, I think it's it's extremely late and and you know somewhat desperate. I'm not enough of an expert to tell you whether it's a quote unquote good deal or not, or, or what yeah. exactly Red Hat brings to the table. But you know when I look at IBM, I look at a company that used to be AAA and is now single A, um, and and 19 years right. ago was one of the absolute dominant corporate American companies. In fact, from what I remember, it, it even managed the first 18 months of the bear market and was still near its high. Um, and, and since then, has, has, you know, in absolute terms, maybe not absolutely disastrous, but, but in relative terms, right. kind of looks like where GE did a year ago. What happens if they slip to some form of triple B or flavor of triple B? I mean, this is an iconic company. The phrase bet the company has been seen three and four times a PC debacle, the death of the near death, I should say, of 1993. But as you correctly state, Michael, they've got an A rating of a triple A perception. And one day they're going to be B or whatever. Uh, what happens when a company does that? Shifts from A-ish to B-ish? Uh, you know, I, I think it's okay to debase your balance sheet if you are enriching your shareholders. It may not be the way I would want to run a company, but I think you can make an argument that that's in your, in mm -hmm. your shareholders' interest and your bondholders, you know, provided you keep up at that sort of triple B-plus level, haven't really been damaged haven't really been damaged too greatly. But, you know, if we went into a technology downturn right. um, and IBM is teetering between, as you say, that A level and that triple B level and spreads are widening, uh, you know, those sorts of bonds don't get treated well right. by markets. What did Mr. Immel get wrong? If you were having a cup of coffee with Mrs. Rometty and Bloomberg will speak to Mrs. Rometty uh, here in a bit, uh, if, if, what would you say to Ms. Rometty about lessons learned from Mr. Immelt? You know, it's it's. I think both of them took over companies at exactly you know, at they a long time. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I think they they were handed very very difficult situations by their prior right. management. Look, I, I I think ML in in retrospect panicked after the 08 financial crisis and got part of a crucial part got rid of a crucial part of GE, which was their, their financial business, and the company has never really been able to rebuild itself since. Uh, you know, in, in the case of IBM. Yes, as I say, it's, it's been a wonderful technology cycle, and you have to ask questions of somebody that came into the cycle in, a, in, a, in right. an okay position like IBM and hasn't managed to innovate, hasn't managed to take advantage of any of the major trends that you've seen take place. John, I got a chart out. I put a, a Michael Scholl chart on uh, the Chinese stock market that was just the usual show brilliance. But I went back and looked at IBM history, which I lived. But I'd forgotten the boom of the early 80s with the IBM PC. And then, John, the absolute crater to 1993. I'd forgotten the trouble IBM was in 25 years ago. Even the last 10 years, though, think about Microsoft. Think about the transition that yeah. Microsoft has managed to make 
of uh, Sally and Adela. Now, that's the way it should have been done at IBM, you would assume, uh, Michael. Yes, but I, you know, Microsoft had one key advantage, which was they were earning tremendous amounts of cash the whole way through it and never really had to touch their balance sheet. The, the, the trouble with Microsoft is they had a fantastic legacy business and they didn't really know to, they really didn't understand what to do with it. You know, IBM, unfortunately, seems to have a deteriorating legacy business and doesn't quite know what to do about it. Well, IBM stock's down about 5%. I, I love the way many people will refer to this, Michael, as a cash deal. I mean, it's a cash deal for Red Hat. For IBM, it's something else. It's a debt deal, right? Uh, correct. It will be financed by debt. That's the situation for the big tech companies. Looking at the situation right now for the broader market, it's interesting that we're about to get the world's second largest tech deal, Michael, seemingly at a time where the market's falling out of bed and increasingly the doom and gloom crew are coming on a program like this talking about the prospect of a downturn. What's the signal that comes from a deal like this this morning? You know, I, 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 you don't want to, like take every deal and say this definitely means something. I think it means a lot for IBM. For the overall technology market, it's perhaps interesting that Red Hat was willing to sell. You know, maybe they felt that their own business was, was coming under pressure. But I think technology's got to the point that it's becoming increasingly competitive, increasingly oligopolistic. Um, and for the first time, I think right. we have questions whether over the medium to longer term, the large technology companies can keep up with expectations. If these are oligopolies, how does IBM adjust to that? And we get to the Cowan Jeffries headlines today in the Bloomberg, where one of them, I believe Cowan says we could see other bids, even at 31 times EBITDA or whatever, and Jeffries saying no way. I mean, there's a desperation out there in cloud technology, isn't there? Well, I, I think it's viewed as, as the best way to make money from the corporate sector, you know, going forward. And I think it's the IBM 360 of 2022, right? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever that was. <laughs> His face. I wish we had. I wish we had. Did TV. you see that on radio, Honestly, folks worldwide? Did you show Shelton? We needed, we needed, we needed that. a TV. Oh, you liked that. it, did I know, you? That was brilliant. Michael's face. When Michael he Barr, did you see that? Shell just killed me on that. Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. I was trying not to laugh. You have no idea, John, how you, the pecking order at any firm was whether you had an IBM typewriter. They were just the coolest thing back, going. Back in the day. They were the coolest thing what, going. What I decade, couldn't type. What, what decade was this? This is so far back, I don't remember what decade. But the point is, it didn't even matter if you could type. It was just cool You still don't do one. your own typing even now. No, I don't do my own typing <laughs> even now. <laughs> Tom Keane. A happy Tom Keane. Michael Scholl, thank you Michael, for this Thank morning. you so much, thank seriously. For giving so much time to Bloomberg Surveillance on yeah, TV and great. radio. Marketfield Asset Management's chairman, portfolio manager, and CEO. to bring in uh, Shannon O'Neill of the Council on Foreign Relations, her expertise on Mexico and Argentina, and of course, on all of Latin America and Brazil. Dr. O'Neill, wonderful to have you with us. You speak of Mexico and America indivisible in your book. Are Brazil and the United States, is this new president and President Trump, are they indivisible? Well, I do think that the new president-elect would like to make them indivisible, He's a big fan of President Trump and has talked a lot about him and how he would follow him and also really touted the phone call he got from President Trump last night and the congratulations. Within this, Shannon O'Neill, is the comparisons to Mr. Duterte of the Philippines. Obviously, law, criminality, 
corruption are front and center in Brazil? Will there be a crackdown that threatens civil liberties? This is what everyone is expecting and what he has said over and over during each campaign stop. Brazil is already a place where the police kill somewhere around 5,000 individuals every year. And so expect those numbers to go up just as they did in the Philippines. The commitment to liberalize and privatize is something the markets have really focused on over the last few months or so, Shannon. Just how strong is that commitment? How fluid is that commitment? Well, this is a big question because the president-elect Bolsonaro has never been a big privatizer. He's voted against it during his almost 30 years within the Congress. But his economic advisor is a very strong privatizer, very orthodox economist, and he's hinted that he will give him free reign. So which Bolsonaro, which government shows up will be a big question. And, and Shannon, this is the issue. The narrative around Bolsonaro, this economic narrative, is recent. It's vague and it hinges on this one individual. Talk to me a little bit more about this one individual that is going to be shaping economic policy in Brazil that ultimately is the economic policy that the market has got behind. Well, he's a very strong personality, very set in these beliefs, very orthodox economist along the University of Chicago lines. So in that sense, he's very pro-market. The question is, as you say, he's new to the Bolsonaro team. And so will he really have his trust? Will he have the power to go forward? And one thing that was said in the last couple of days is that he will report to <clears throat> Bolsonaro's chief of staff, so suggesting he might not have that direct line to yeah. the new president. Shannon, within your expertise of Latin America, how discreet is Brazil or are there more linkages than we understand with the adjacent nations and even with Mexico? Well, Brazil is the biggest economy in, in the hemisphere outside of the United States. Uh, it has a lot of trade with the Mercosur partners, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay. Mm -hmm. It has the possibility of being a regional and a bigger global leader. We've seen that at various moments along the way. Um, and it is important for what's going on in Venezuela, also its neighbor. And we'll see whether the new president takes a leadership role on the crisis that's happening there. Well, what's the linkage of the military? Or, well, let me rephrase this in my ignorance. What is the linkage of the military slash police uh, with this new president? Well, he was an army captain many, many years ago, um, but he's a huge aficionado, a huge fan of the military. He likes to talk in that language. He likes to talk about giving the police a free reign. So expect a much more militarized state in many ways. We also saw several ex-military officers brought in as governors or as members of Congress. So you're mm -hmm. going to see more of this rhetoric within the new political class. Shannon, thank you so much. Shannon O'Neill, the Council on Foreign Relations. Can't say enough about two nations indivisible. It has aged well out four or five years ago. Two nations indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the road ahead as well. Let us pause with Neil Shearing of Capital Economics. You can do that. He's, he's really, really quite good, spanning from EM to developed countries as well. And Neil, if you were to write a report today, what would you focus on in the capital economics mix? Well, that's a question. Uh, there, I mean, there's, no, there's just so many things going on. I don't want to predetermine it. What would you write on? 
there's there's obviously lots of strands that we that, that we we do tend to focus on. Yeah. There's the trade war. Um, to what extent is that going to escalate? To what extent that's is that going to kill the global economy? Um, there's the risk of uh, political uh, fragmentation, rise of populism, economic nationalism in parts of the world, um, including with the news of Bolsonaro's victory in Brazil over the weekend. Um, the big question to my mind, though, is to what extent, how much longevity is there in the US recovery? To what extent does the cumulative effects of previous Fed rate uh, rate hikes, Fed tightening, uh, when does that start to bite? When does the fiscal sugar high from the tax cuts earlier this year start to fade? Uh, and that's the big puzzle, because that, it's the US that stands out at the moment. Every Right. Most other parts of the global economy is slowing. And John, uh, within it's that the is the US that's powering yeah, ahead. John, within that is the dollar dynamics. Is, is the guess of dollar dynamics? Yeah, which people have got wrong for two years wrong, two years running now. Tom, um, looking for a stronger, and they get a weaker. They look for a weaker, and they get a stronger. That's been the story of 2017, 2018. Neil, really fascinating interview with Jeff Gunlack very recently on um, on CityWire. It was really, really interesting, and he talked about what he looks for in the economic data. And either the data changes or people's interpretation of that data changes. Has the data changed or have people just started to interpret the data differently? Well, another good question. I think that there is genuinely a sense, I think, in the last six months that the economic data outside of the US have started to soften. Uh, we see that not just in the soft data, the survey data, the PMIs and so on and so forth. We see it in the hard data, some trade data slowing, industrial production's weaker pretty much across the board. Japan's economy look like it, looks like it contracted in Q3 uh, and China's economy is losing m momentum too. So I think there is something tangible in the in the data. The, the puzzle that you, as you alluded to earlier, is that we've not yet seen signs of wage pressure picking up in the countries where the labor markets are tight and growth is still strong, particularly the US yeah. uh, and, and the <clears> UK. Um, and that's the, I think that's the, that's, the, that's the missing piece of the jigsaw so far. Now, very quickly here, uh, you were with us earlier. We talked about China slowing down. What is China growth right now at Capital Economics? And can, dare I say, we get a print below 6.0%? We, you can. We have our own uh, in-house measure, our China Activity Proxy. That's kind of running at the moment at about 5.5, 5.8, wow. something like that. It got to as low as just below 4 uh, at the end of 2015, start of 2016, which if you remember, that's when he had the botched devaluation and a big slowdown in China's economy. Subsequent recovery fueled by policy stimulus, that's now fading uh, and growth is slowing accordingly. Neil, just quickly, what are you looking for on Friday? We've got 185. I think the consensus is 193, something around that. Uh, the key will be what happens with the wage numbers. Is there a further acceleration in wage growth? How does the Fed react? How does it wet balance that against the turmoil that we've seen in equity markets and stock markets over the past month or so? No sharing. Thank you uh, so much as well. With the news flow this morning, we uh, we did early, early this morning, the shocking headlines that coming out of Germany of Chancellor Merkel uh, stepping down from party leadership of her dominant CDU. This after a troubled election in Bavaria a few weeks ago in Hessen, which is uh, Wiesbaden and Frankfurt over the weekend. And then really the, the major headline coming out of a end or political career uh, looking out two and three years. Nina Schick is with Rasmussen. This is the Rasmussen of Denmark and London, uh, and we greatly appreciate her attendance uh, this morning. Nina, 
Is it an analysis out two and three years of after the parties CDU, after the parties CPD, or can these two dominant parties find a new path in domestic Germany? I think they don't have a choice. They have to find a new path. And the thing is that Angela Merkel has been such a monolith, not only in terms of domestic politics in Germany, but also in terms of EU politics and also global politics, that filling that space, that void that she's going to live behind, is going to inevitably going to cause a little soul-searching and bloodletting in her parties. And although I think she's setting, setting the stage for her departure, which, by the way, I would argue was always going to be the case given her performance in the national election in 2017 and the subsequent regional elections where we've seen her parties, uh, her both her party and the other traditional kind of center-left mainstream party being hammered, I would argue that this is inevitable. And the bigger trend of what we're seeing in Germany is something that we see across the liberal Western democratic world where the center cannot hold anymore and politics is becoming more and more polarized, noisy and increasingly fractured. That's something we see in Germany with the rise of the far right right AFD, but also with the Greens, both of whom uh, present, you know, a diametrically opposing vision of Germany and what Germany's place in the world should be. I'm wondering, Nina, if there are any sort of likely candidates to fulfill uh, Angela Merkel's role as head of the party. For example, the health minister, Jens Spahn. Uh, Well, so the first thing I should mention is that Merkel has said that she's going to step down from the party's leadership, but she's still technically saying that she's going to serve out the full tenure as chancellor leading into 2021. But again, I think what she's doing is you know, setting the scene for an early exit. So big question mark about whether or not she will actually stay until 2021, but she's not leaving, leaving imminently. As to her successor, well, that's where it gets a bit complicated because Angela Merkel herself was, you know, a proponent or even a student of Helmut Kohl, you know, the former chancellor. And under that school of thought, she was very good at eradicating any potential successor when they started getting a bit too powerful, a bit too close for her. So there aren't very many obvious candidates. Of the few people that are being touted, like Jens Spahn or Anne-Margrethe Karrenbauer, who is known as almost a a mini-Merkel, I think that it is a poison chalice because she has been such a behemoth in German and global politics that being her successor, and make no mistake, she's still going to have a say on who her successor is. Being her successor might be too toxic long-term politically because they'll be so tied to Angela Merkel and, you know, the older generation of the CDU, be it Merkel or Wolfgang Schäuble, that their own political career (laughs) might not last too long. So you have a younger generation of politicians who are coming up, including, for example, Jan Spahn, who don't necessarily immediately want to step into her shoes right now because they want to make sure that they are able to define themselves as something quite different from Merkel. So it will take a few years, I think. As part of your work at Rasmussen Global, you've looked at a variety of campaigns. Uh, You also uh, did some work on the UK's EU referendum. Do you believe that there'll be a new government in the UK? Well, British politics is very precarious right now. And I think that, you know, on a separate note, I think that we are seeing a lot of kind of um, 
dissonance, or should we say, complicated politics around the world, which I think has is something much larger to do with the state of democracy and the world order which was built in the ashes of the Second World War and how that's all being upended, not least because of what's happening in the United States. With regards to the UK in particular, the biggest challenge that the government and the Prime Minister Theresa May have on their hands right now is to get the Brexit deal through Parliament. They've already kind of agreed the deal on the EU level. And what we've seen in the past two years is that the UK has come around to this position of thinking, but if they don't get that through, the government may fall. Okay, but in Germany and in England, Pim's good mm-hmm. question and your wonderful answer, an informed answer, is the reality at the ballot box people are voting. When does this populism trend end, whether it's Poland or Germany or England or, frankly, Kentucky in eight days? When does populism end? I don't, I don't see a rational outcome for the elites other than it keeps going uh i tend to agree with your analysis there tom i i I think that this is very much the trajectory of politics that we're going to be seeing in the years to come a highly emotive partisan and destructive and angry politics in part because i think that democracy quote unquote has failed for a lot of people and this kind of anger that you see not only in the United States, but also across Europe, yeah. means that the narrative that we've told ourselves, in particular uh, with the United States as well, that open markets, liberal democracy and capitalism go right. hand in hand, and that this is some kind of linear progress to which all of right. the rest of the countries in the world are going to aspire to, that very narrative is being challenged. And what we find is that liberal democracy is no longer... <clears throat> Right. Uh, is no longer the aspirational model for everyone in the world, but it's actually becoming an exception. And there mm. is valid criticism to be made. You know, there's valid criticism of the liberal elites. Um, and right. I, 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 I tend to agree with you that this is something you know, we're going to see playing out heavily in the next few years. Nina, on short notice, thank you so much. Nina Schick with Rasmussen of Denmark and England uh, helping out this morning on uh, European news. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.